Coming up on the Upon a Dream podcast, a conversation with former Disney Imagineer Bob Bernick. Plus, we explore Adventureland in this week's installment of A Walk in the Park. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Welcome to the Upon a Dream podcast. All aboard. A journey through yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. Now here's your host, Jonathan Glissmeyer. Hello and welcome. It's true, I'm Jonathan Glissmeyer, and this is the Upon a Dream podcast. Be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for the Upon a Dream podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, Facebook is probably a good place for that. You can also email the show at uponadreampod at gmail.com. If you want to have your voice heard on the show, you can call the listener feedback line. That's 503-877-9020, 503-877-9020. Just leave a voicemail. You can give us your favorite Disney story. Tell us what your favorite attraction is, your favorite land, whatever you want to do on there. Just go ahead and leave a voicemail. That's 503-877-9020. Now, if you're listening to the show for the first time, I definitely urge you to go back and check out the first episode as well. We had author Todd James Pierce on the show. He's a Disney historian, and he also wrote the book Three Years in Wonderland, which details the uh, couple of years leading up to Disneyland opening, as well as its first year in operation. We talked about some of Walt's creative influences, among other things, and we also took a stroll down Main Street in the first installment of Walk in the Park. Today we're going to focus quite a bit on Adventureland, which of course was one of the five original lands at Disneyland, and part of the reason why is because our guest today is former Disney Imagineer Bob Berenick. He worked for Imagineering from 1986 until 1999. He played a big role in the Indiana Jones Adventure Ride and also the transition from Swiss Family Treehouse becoming the Tarzan Treehouse. You'll hear him talk about the stress of updating classic rides like Pirates of the Caribbean. And then later in the show, we're going to have our second installment of A Walk in the Park, which this week will focus on Adventureland. It just seemed fitting with Bob on the show. But before we get to that, let's go ahead and jump right into the discussion part of the show. Former Disney Imagineer, Bob Berenick. Away we go. Bob Berenick worked for Disney Imagineering from 1986 until 1999. When I reached out to see if he would come on the show... He said he would happily do so. However, I was somewhat amused when he emailed me back and said he'd be happy to accept the invite, but he also wished me luck in finding new material to discuss that hasn't already been covered. Well, that's just it. I mean, I love talking to everybody, but I'm trying to think, you know, I've, I've done enough of these now. I don't want to bore people. I spent a lot of time with, with some of the, the veterans that... Um, I admired so much, and, and it is kind of funny because they tend to repeat themselves. 
And while some of that may be true, we thought we'd pick his brain and just kind of get his perspective on his time working for Disney Imagineering. And in Bob's case, working for Disney Imagineering was something he had his mind set on from a very young age. Absolutely. Probably about 10. Um, yeah, I, I think the thing that was the most motivating for me was when they came out with the making of the Pirates of the Caribbean book, showed all the guys with the models and artwork, and it's like, that's, that's what I want to do. In 1986, Bob reaches his dream, and one of the things I instantly was curious about is once you finally get the call that you've been hired by Disney, what exactly happens next? They hired me for Disneyland Paris. Um, there was a, a real core group. There was uh, the six, sorry, the five producers, and each of the producers had an architect, and I was the model builder for Frontierland, so I worked closely with Jeff Burr, who was the producer. But the project didn't get funded yet. It, they, had, they thought they were going to start it up sooner than they did, and they hired me, and they hired Eddie Sato, and two or three other folks. And... Uh, because it didn't start, they, they put me on things like Splash Mountain and some other projects. I, was, I did get to work with George Lucas early on on the Tomorrowland concept, waiting for Disneyland Paris to kick in. As I previously mentioned, Bob and I kind of joked about the fact that most stuff in Disney history has been covered quite extensively. And this is one of those topics, probably for Bob, which would be the Indiana Jones Adventure. But I think it's safe to say that attraction is kind of a big deal, so I had to ask him about it. What's the backstory of Indiana Jones, and how did it come to be? The real simple answer is the fact that when they signed George Lucas to do Star Tours, uh, they signed him also to use Indiana Jones, Use It or Lose It, by I believe it was... Uh, I think it was like 98 or 1998 or something. They had a limited amount of time. So I kind of picked up the ball and ran with it. And I was actually doing Phantom Manor at the same time. But, I, you know, I was young and I was full of energy. And I was very motivated for Indy. And George Lucas was very interested in doing the mine car ride. Well, Disney had sunk a lot of money into developing the motion simulator attraction, which is the one they built. And so the, I'm sure everybody's heard about the Indiana Jones and the Lost Expedition, which was the the big attraction that had the Jungle Cruise and the train and the mine car and all that. That was, that was my project. And I had a team of, oh, I don't know, 40 to 50 people working on it for a couple of years. And uh, it really came down to money. And... Um, strategic planning group who was the corporate group that decided which projects got green lit um, they had initially told us we had 135 million and then they changed their mind on it and they were probably right about their initial estimate of or their second estimate of I think it was 95 million so that eliminated all the other attractions in the whole Adventureland park and they just focused on the simulator motion based ride as Bob was talking about an alternate version for the Indiana Jones adventure, I couldn't help but think, how does that play out when there's multiple ideas on the table? Is it strictly just a budget decision? Um, often, but I think there was the other factor was the fact that the um, mine car ride was a very low capacity. It's, it's the same as the ride that's in Paris in Adventureland. And um, the park operations folks were really concerned about that. 
because you know they have very high requirements for capacity, and it, it was only a third of what the Jeep ride is. So we had spent a lot of time developing a sequential attraction, which was really kind of fun because it involved getting lost in the temple in a labyrinth, and the real point of that whole experience was to thin the crowd out from it was a sequential attraction where you were going to ride the jeep and you're going to go through the uh, temple in a in a walkthrough experience kind of like a maze and about a third of them would have been trapped quote unquote and they would have had to ride the mine car out as the escape well it was expensive and uh, what i was really happy to see was that the um Rise of the Resistance attraction that's in Galaxy's Edge is kind of the same experience. It's it's uh, a linear thing that really it's like it's like living in a movie, and, and uh, that's the one thing about Disney that's so wonderful is that good ideas never die. They always get kind of. So what about the workload else. of working for Disney Imagineering? How fluid is it? Or in other words, when Indiana Jones is finished, for example. I'm assuming they don't just give you a pat on the back and say, great job, now everybody can go home. Well, typically they don't, but it has happened that way. I mean, you know, the, probably the, the biggest example of that was when Epcot was originally opened in 82. They had three or 4,000 people that just didn't have anything to do, so they had to let them go. But back when I was there, it was was more of individual camps and so we were always I, I was very much involved in concept stuff i was trying to create new attractions and ideas and things that weren't even on the boards um now i understand that it's probably more of a mandate from management down as to what who, who works on what and what kind of project what kind of funding and so forth so it's it's i don't want to say it's corporate but it's you know, there, there aren't the unsolicited ideas floating around like there used to be, mm-hmm. my understanding. Um, and I think what they do is they generally have, you know, teams that are certain styles and um, they will assign them from one to the next to the next. You know, they, they, do, they do kind of repeat themselves right now. So, you know, like there's Mickey's Runaway Railway, there's going to be a second version of that. So those teams kind of stay together. To take that a step further, I know that Bob had worked on several updates for big attractions at Disneyland. How often are projects like that actually in consideration? A lot of fans have long felt that Tomorrowland needs a little bit of a reimagination or at least a facelift. So is there always a backlog of these things in consideration? Or is there always kind of a here and now focus on particular projects that are priorities. They, they have a very good library of old ideas that are good ideas that need to be used somewhere sometime. Um, but depending on the creative executives in charge of each property, they have their own desires. And, and uh, our particular group, we were, we were spending a lot of time coming up with all kinds of ideas about both Tomorrowland and um, Frontierland and areas that we thought needed a lot of work. This was before Disneyland California Adventure was built. We were pushing things, and it was 
it was very different back then. I was always trying to push ideas, and it was depending on Michael Eisner's their feelings about what he wanted, or you know what would excite them. That that's the kind of things that they would green light. And we got we had a lot of success. I mean, I I would I feel like there's um, you know a lot of things that were that were built that probably wouldn't have been built had we not tried. And you know I've, I've got quite a few that didn't get built too that I think possibly will someday. Working with such a creative group like the Imagineers, there has to be plenty of ideas and projects that never get made for one reason or another. I asked Bob if he would be willing to share some of those from his time at Disney. Well, I, I don't know that it's a problem. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of those things floating around out there that I don't know that people have put two and two together, but uh, one of them that we chased was when they were taking out the bears and putting in Winnie the Pooh. We had an idea called Critter Country 500, which I had hired uh, Chris Merritt to do a poster art, which I think you can find online. and, and uh, Another great designer that I've worked with a lot was Kirk Hansen, and so he helped with the character development of that attraction. And it was kind of a soapbox derby meets the uh, Country Bear Jamboree. It was a lot of fun. Um, another one was, I've seen a lot of this online, is the um, Geyser Mountain attraction, which is a mine shaft drop. And, and what where that came from was after uh, Tower of Terror was built in Florida, park management came to me and said well we don't want to spend the money we spent on tower terror in florida but can you come up with something that is about half the cost and oh by the way we've got this piece of property in frontierland near big thunder that maybe you can theme it to that and so we had uh, we had a lot of fun with that one that came real close and then uh one of the executives wasn't fond of the idea so it got shelled and i think later on they thought about putting it into Disneyland Paris, and that hasn't happened yet. And then the third one that I can think of would be um, the Carousel Theater for Tomorrowland. We had, after the George Lucas spaceport concept, you know, we still had an empty building, and, and everybody was trying to figure out what to do with that, and so we developed a story that was called New Horizons, which was a city of the future, and it was kind of a offshoot of the Horizons attraction in Epcot. And I don't know if uh, your fans are familiar, but there's a piece, was a piece of art at the exit to Horizons that was done by Bob McCall. And it was this glorious city of the future. Uh, big, beautiful white buildings and, you know, flying airships and stuff around. So what I did was develop that on the Carousel Theater. And the show inside was kind of a, it's a wonderful life which I'm very pleased to see was actually the film Tomorrowland. I, I thought Tomorrowland was kind of a positive message. And um, we were just a little too ahead of the time, I think, because that was not well received at all for Tomorrowland. I think everybody was afraid of the future and trying to predict what it would be. So they just didn't want to go there. One of the last big expansions at Disneyland, besides obviously Galaxy's Edge, was Toontown. So I was curious if there was ever any other considerations for that area of the park. Well, Toontown specifically was a need. Um, the number one guest request was wanting to meet Mickey Mouse and take a photo with him. So the t and I was not on that team, but the team that developed it came up with the concept of, you know, being able to, to move 
a lot of people through there so that everybody was guaranteed a photo with Mickey. What what they had to do was kind of force fit it because Disneyland is so landlocked. There's just not a lot of room. And um, back then we were trying to use back a house space without moving facilities off the property. Now they've just reluctantly decided to move everybody out. I mean, they're they're they're, they're really almost at their capacity already. But that Toontown in particular was, where, do, where are we going to find room to put Mickey? And the first time they did that was Bear Country when Mark Davis did the Country Bear Jamboree. That was a good show that they, they needed to figure out where to put it. They couldn't put it in Frontierland proper, so they had to create an annex at the end of Frontierland. Same with, same with Galaxy's Edge. Towards the end of his tenure at Disney, another project that Bob worked on was the treehouse going from Swiss Family Robinson to Tarzan. Well, it was a little stressful, to be quite honest, um, because I found myself in the position of having to do that to several of Walt's attractions, and I was not comfortable with it. I, you know, I was asked to do it, and I did my best with it, but I didn't really like the idea of taking out some of the classics. You know, we had to change Pirates, and mm-hmm. we, did, we did some other... There was, that, around that time, it was the Paul Pressler era, and a lot of the older attractions were being torn out you know subs was another one that was kind of a battle and the treehouse for me was like well it was a good film the tarzan film was really good so we were like okay this is probably going to work it's a shame we have to lose the swiss family robinson but i i think we did our best with it and i'm, I'm actually kind of proud with how it turned out i just at that time i was getting kind of tired of ripping out the classics working for imagineering you get to see a lot of things that a lot of people wish they could see you get to be part of something that a lot of people wish they could be a part of so for someone like bob i had to know what was his magic place in the park the one place that he always goes back to well, it's funny. I, I just love to sit in the hub, which is what the intention was to, to, to you know, when, when Walt built the hub, it was kind of a place to, for people to meet. And it was a, a central part of the park where people could get their bearings and understand where to go to and come back from. And I, I just like my favorite experience is to watch people enjoying what's been built and to listen to their comments. I mean, I, you know, when I was working for them, I would sit at the exit of attractions and, you know, you Generally, you got great responses on what you were doing, but it was also important to learn what people didn't like, you know. And so the hub is, and and Town Square is another example where I can just kind of take it all in and and listen to people. And and I I would have to say one of my favorite things is to watch new families come into the park for the first time because they're overwhelmed with the experience of it and just to listen to the excitement and the, you know, the, the genuine objectivity of what it is. And that's what Walt's intention always was. If you want to learn more about Bob, you can check out his website, bobbaranek.com. There you can find his portfolio and learn about all the interesting things that he's been a part of especially if you want to see some of the stuff he did during his tenure at Disney. That is going to do it for the discussion part of the show, and now it's time to highlight a certain area or attraction of the park. Bob was just talking about the hub, so this week we are going to go ahead and take a left turn, and we're going to go explore, take a little adventure.
It's time to take an in-depth look. It's time for a walk in the park. Former Imagineer Bob Berenick said his favorite area of Disneyland was the hub. The hub gives a unique perspective of everything happening around you. If you look in one direction, you see the iconic Sleeping Beauty Castle leading into Fantasyland. Look in another direction, you'll see Tomorrowland. And if you look off to the left while facing the castle, Frontierland. Out of the five original lands in Disneyland, the only entrance you won't see is Adventureland. As Disney often does, for authenticity, it's a little more hidden and off the beaten path. Once you enter Adventureland, the paths are narrow and lined with trees, giving the impression that you've ventured off into some exotic place. Adventureland, of course, is one of the five original lands at Disneyland. When it opened in 1955, there was just one attraction, the Jungle Cruise. However, the Jungle Cruise was considered one of Disneyland's most important attractions during the first several years of operation. At the time, the Adventureland River was over 1,640 feet long. It was part of a 22 million gallon continuously flowing waterway system. And the river itself averaged 30 feet wide and five feet deep. There was also a popular restaurant in Adventureland called the Tahitian Terrace, which in 1993 became Aladdin's Oasis and is today known as Tropical Hideaway where, of course, you can get one of the most popular treats in Disneyland, the Dole Whip. In the early 1960s, Adventureland started to undergo significant changes. On December 19, 1962, Adventureland opened its second attraction, the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse, based on the 1961 movie. Then in June 1963, Disneyland opened its first audio-animatronic attraction, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. The fourth and final attraction in Adventureland would come much later in 1994 when construction began on the Indiana Jones ride. This was a huge undertaking that required many changes, including building a boathouse that would serve as the new queue for the Jungle Cruise, and even simplifying a section of the river on the attraction just beyond the Amazon rainforest. Due to some slight changes, the Jungle Cruise was shortened just by about 30 seconds. Well worth it though, for what is today known as one of the best thrill rides in any Disney theme park, the Indiana Jones Adventure transports guests using an enhanced motion system with over 160,000 possible combinations. Adventureland is the only land in Disneyland where the walkway after the entrance actually gets more narrow. There's also no popcorn or churro vendors in Adventureland because they thought it would take away from the idea that you are in a faraway place. Some people may be familiar with the story of the Dominguez family who sold to Disney's some of the land in which Disneyland was eventually built on. They had one condition. It was that Walt would take care of a tree that was on their property. The Dominguez family tree was moved into Adventureland, and Walt kept his promise to watch over the tree. The tree is over 100 years old, 
and it's one of the oldest things in Disneyland. A couple things to look for next time you trek through Adventureland. If you're familiar with the children's book, The Little Man of Disneyland, the little man's house portrayed in the book can actually be found in Adventureland built into a tree. Outside of the Indiana Jones ride, you can actually find two props from Indiana Jones. One of them is a truck that's actually owned by George Lucas and was used in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the other is a minecart that was actually used in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The atmosphere in Adventureland is vibrant and it's home to some of the most classic and exciting rides in Disneyland. At some point in another segment of A Walk in the Park, we will definitely dive into attractions like the Jungle Cruise and Indiana Jones Adventure. There's a lot to unpack there, but for now, we'll leave that for another adventure. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Upon a Dream podcast. Again, find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search for the Upon a Dream podcast. You can email the show uponadreampod at gmail.com. Coming up on the next episode of the show, we are also going to have another former Disney Imagineer. He has a pretty interesting story as he started out on the animation side of Disney and then actually transitioned over to Imagineering. He was at Disney for several decades and ended up as the creative senior vice president of Imagineering. It's Joe Lanzancero. So I hope you'll look forward to that just as much as I do. Again, I thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. And until next time, I'm Jonathan Glissmeyer. This is the Upon a Dream podcast. 